My name is Lauren Jones. I'm a deacon here at Mercy View. Tonight we will be in Romans 12, verse 15. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is the word of the Lord. Um, hey, this evening, uh, I'm excited to get to open God's word with you. Um, we're going to focus in on a single verse. Um, which is what we did a couple weeks ago, uh, the last time I got to preach. Um, and uh, I actually really like this because there's, there's this thing I think that we find um, when we, we try to look at one single verse in Scripture, especially when you're preparing to preach it, and that's, um, it's kind of hard to do sometimes. So what do you talk about when you have like 13 or 14 words? Um, and, and what I love about God's Word is that every word is dripping with something for us to glean. And, and this passage is rich. Um, I'll call it a passage, not just a verse, because there's so much richness to it. Um, and that's what we're going to dive into this evening. Uh, about a month ago, um, I was on that repository of all wisdom, joy, and healthy dialogue um, in our culture, Twitter. Um, and a, a, a lighthearted debate had begun around a tweet that a, a, a woman in Austin had sent out. It was a screenshot of a text from a friend and a, a caption along with that screenshot. And in the screenshot, you see this text conversation where the friend asked this lady, hey, do you need any help moving? Apparently she's moving that weekend. And, and her reply was, um, I would never ask a friend to help me move. I'm an adult. Thank you for asking though. The tweet captioned with the commentary, um, as an adult, don't ask your friends to help you move. Hire movers, save a friendship. Um, now, Elon hasn't added as of yet the sarcasm or I'm just trying to be coy feature to the platform yet, but context clues kind of suggest that this was partly posted in jest while I think she actually holds this opinion. Don't ask your friends to help you move because it's rude, because it's an imposition on them. Twitter was ablaze because most of Twitter disagreed with that sentiment. And by and large, um, that's neither here nor there. What I found fascinating about this tweet is the underlying assumption that the author, many of her supporters, and I think even though most of Twitter didn't agree with her, they still hold as well. Because it's an assumption that exists within our culture. It's something in the air that we breathe. And though right now most people might say, no, you can totally ask your friends to help you move. This base assumption as it gathers ground, I think, will continue to make where that percentage goes down further and further. And it really doesn't matter what you think about whether or not you should help your friends move. The assumption underneath it is life should be as free from the imposition of other people on my life and my life on theirs as absolutely possible. You do you, I'm going to do me, and we're just going to let things be how they are. Because we're in a moment right now culturally where one of the highest, if not the highest good in our lives is the self. Life is like a crashing plane, so the metaphor goes. And if you don't secure your own mask first through self-care and self-love, you won't be any good to anyone else. And honestly, that's the exact metaphor I use with Ellen when she's like, gosh, I haven't had a chance to even eat lunch yet today. And I'm like, you can put the baby down long enough to fix a sandwich. I know she's going to cry. And she's like, I need to take care of her. 
And to the extent where uh, what we mean when we talk about self-care and self-love, um, we're, we're saying that we're approaching our life, our time, our bodies, our rest, our money with wisdom and stewarding what God has given us by feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, caring for ourselves. It's good and right. But what I mean when I, when I use that term self-care, self-love, when I, when I talk about the fact that our culture has bought into this idea that the highest good is the self with a little twinge of side eye is what each of us knows happens when those activities devolve. Because what self-care and self-love becomes is what the Bible calls the love of self. See, one of the greatest ironies of our day is that we are so consumed and fixated on ourselves and it's baked into everything to do that we do, yet we are shocked that so many people seem so toxic. We're absolutely baffled that narcissism and narcissistic tendencies have been on the rise for the last few decades in the West. And so at this point, you're probably sitting there going, Trey, what does moving your buddy's couch and this iffy at best wisdom of self-care fixation on the self in our world have to do with the text that we just read tonight? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I'm glad that you asked because that's the next part in my notes. Um, because what we're going to see is that as we look at Scripture and we map Scripture over top of our lives, God isn't all surprised about our tendency to slide toward the love of self. That tendency that so much of our world, maybe some of us in this room tonight have entered into. In fact, Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, the second one that he writes, and he gives him this warning. He says, hey, I want you to be aware of this. In the last days, there are going to come some difficult times. For people are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sound a little bit familiar? Maybe. Now as a side note, I don't want us to get hung up on the fact that when Tim, Paul says this to Timothy, he says in the last days, um, he was writing that to Timothy saying, I want you to avoid this. Okay, And so uh, he assumes Timothy's in the last days. So um, don't think that when I read that and say, hey, this looks like what our culture looks like right now. I'm saying the rapture's about to happen and we've got to watch out for those RFID chips in the hand or on the forehead or something. What I'm saying is, that we've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. And if we look at history and we look at the generations that have come before us and the generation we live in now, different generations are going to emphasize different things. There's going to be different emphases throughout history. But this list looks like what our cultures have always looked like. We just so happen to live in a world where the love of self without self-control and being a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God stands out more than the others. It's just the moment we live in. And God's not surprised by those things. And the good news is that he offers an antidote to this self-sickness that we have. And that antidote is the verse that we read tonight. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. 
I got one big thing that I want us to see this evening and then a couple comments about what it looks like to rejoice, what it looks like to weep in context of this verse. The first thing though is this, and this is where this ports onto this problem. The Christian life is filled with imposition by design. Here's what I mean. To rejoice and to mourn with those in Christian community who are and should be doing the same because they're called to in this verse will almost always be inconvenient and an imposition that forces us to do the opposite of what we may feel at any given time. The call to rejoice and to weep is an imposition on our lives. See, life in Christ with other people is messy. And a messy life is an inconvenient life. And God calls us again and again to step into the messy, inconvenient imposition of other people's lives pressed upon our own. And so this verse, it sits as this linchpin in this passage that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. Starting in verse 9, working all the way to the end where Brad got us to last week in verse 21. It's in the middle. And it's telling us something about everything else that is around it. And so if you got your Bible uh, open to where we just read this evening back in uh, chapter 12, verse 15, look back at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then he's going to go on, he's given this list of specific actions and activities and actions specific. There's four actions in here that are an imposition on our lives. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And that brings us back to verse 15. And we're going to talk about the rest of this passage, the end of the chapter, in just a moment. But look at what Paul describes here as genuine Christian love. We are to love one another with a brotherly, familial affection. We're to try to outdo one another in showing each other honor. We're to give to help the needs inside the body of Christ and to open our lives to those outside through showing hospitality. And then in verse 14, it's the most imposition, outlandish imposition of all. Like Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Like love those who hate you. It's messy, it's hard, it's inconvenient. All in one sense forced upon us by the scriptures But nothing is as much of an imposition as verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And in that, Paul is saying, celebrate the good things that God has given to others, even and particularly if your desires haven't haven't been met. If you desire the same thing and haven't received it. Be grateful for the good that God does for others even if in your life you might be facing lack. He says, weep with those who weep. Even if in the moment you feel joy, enter into the sorrow and mourning of those around you that are in the throes of misery and grief. Sit with them. Feel what they feel to the degree that you can do so. 
It's this call to empathy, but it's not just mere empathy. See, the interconnectedness of the Christian life in the Christian community means that at any given moment, you may be rejoicing or you may be weeping while someone else is experiencing the exact opposite thing. And so we have coming together in these moments a charge to enter into the opposite emotion, the opposite feeling of what we might currently have as a way to show brotherly love and affection. To show that we honor our brother or our sister and outdo one another in showing that. To contribute to the need that our brothers and sisters knew all of your mind. The demonstration of that love and a transformed mind is learning to live in light of Romans 12, 15. Like consider this for a moment. What greater evidence of a changed heart is there than having the ability to rejoice and be glad when a friend or neighbor or acquaintance receives something of joy? Like to actually be able to enter into joy with them. What kind of love must you have for someone to step into sorrow and grief voluntarily so that you can sit with them and experience their pain and distress out of love for them? And we'll unpack what it means to rejoice and weep a bit more here in just a second. But I also want us to to return to what I said a minute ago, the last part of chapter 12 that Paul or that Brad helped us with last week. So far, what we've looked at and what we've talked about, about this imposition on the Christian life is an imposition within Christian community, rejoicing and weeping together as part of the family of God. And there's a sense in which that kind of makes sense and and could seem like something, yeah, okay, I totally get that. Because in a family, you just kind of bear one another's burdens. You walk along with people in your family because you don't really get to choose your family. And the family of God is like that because God's the one who does the choosing, not us. And we're brought together in that. So it kind of makes sense. It's messy. It's hard. But it's an imposition that we know is going to be part of our lives. But consider the context of the rest of the passage. And we need to because this verse sits in the middle of this latter context. Paul has turned away from discussing about the Christian community in verse 13. In verse 13, as he says, hey, now seek to show hospitality, the focus begins to turn outward. And in verse 14, we're talking about people who are uh, considered enemies, right? Hostile to the faith. And then he goes through all the way to verse 21. And he says, hey, bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Like assuming that's happening. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him water. Don't avenge yourself. To live as a Christian is a radically different way of life that more times than not involves foregoing our rights for the good of others. And so, when we are called to rejoice and to weep, it is not just within our own family, within the household of God, but it is to rejoice over the good things and weep over the sad things with anyone in our life 
that we have an opportunity to show that kind of love toward. So even with those who are outside of God's family, who are enemies, because they're enemies of God, Paul is calling us to have the same posture toward them as we have toward one another. And so understanding that underneath this verse is an assumption that to be a Christian is to have our life imposed upon by Christ. And that's the posture he calls you to have toward other people. I want us to look at each phrase. I'm going to do that by starting with rejoice with those who rejoice. And so I want you to take a moment and filter your own life. What happens in your heart and mind when someone around you receives something good. Like if you just think about what happens when someone that you know is given something good, and especially when you don't get the same treatment at the same time or in return. Like it's Betsy from accounting's birthday last week and someone brought a cake to celebrate, but you're salty because your birthday was last month and nobody brought a cake for you. Like that kind of reaction is super easy to see in kids, especially when you got multiple kids around birthday time. Like we just went through this like two weeks ago. My six-year-old just turned six a couple weeks ago, and my three-year-old was pretty salty that he wasn't getting presents too. Like, where are my presents at? Like, where's my cake at? It's like, dude, we just did this for you back in October. Okay, you can chill. It'll be fine. He didn't understand what it was to rejoice for sister because he wanted some too. And our hearts can get that way. Now, if we move outside of the material, because that's easy to go, oh, yeah, okay, I can see myself getting envious. The real stuff happens when we start to understand what it means to rejoice, yet have our flesh incited by envy and covetousness in the more important matters of life. Like, imagine a friend comes into GC on Thursday night with a request for prayer because a loved one is sick and it's, it's not looking good. And then a couple weeks go by, and the report that comes back is that God has intervened to restore them to health. It's a moment for rejoicing. But in your heart, you feel a twinge of jealousy because you've had the exact same experience. And the group has prayed in the exact same way, with the exact same fervency. And God did not answer in the way that you wanted. He didn't intervene. Maybe that loved one is still battling whatever was debilitating them. Maybe they passed away. That is the imposition of the gospel call then, to rejoice with those who rejoice even in life's hardest moments. While in our hearts we still feel the sting of death or the pain of loss and grief begin to rise up. It's in these moments that we're forced to come to grips with a call to genuine Christian love in community. That can say, I will rejoice with my brother or sister in spite of the feelings that are rising up inside of me now because... I know that the reason they've received this good gift is because it comes from God. James 1.17 says that every good and every perfect gift comes down from God. He is the one who supplies it. And so when something good happens to those in our lives and we're tempted to start to feel this covetousness rise up inside of us, 
What's happening is we're beginning to spurn the grace of God toward another. We're looking at what God has done and we're saying, it's not fair they received this. And what we're saying is that God isn't fair. That we're called to rejoice because God has chosen to bless. And, and, and what maturing believers who want to outdo one another in showing honor know is that when my brother or my sister has reason to rejoice, I have reason to rejoice as well. And listen, that's so much easier said than done because those feelings that rise up in us, the, it just isn't fair. That sentiment, it's an outcropping of our hearts being driven toward breaking the 10th commandment. And it's the commandment that most of us break without ever realizing it. The 10th commandment says, do not covet. Do not desire or want to have something that has been given to someone else. And you know why? Because God's the one who's given it. It is his right to give gifts however he sees fit. And so what happens when we enter into the joy and triumph of our brothers and sisters, of our friends and neighbors, of our co-workers, and even our rivals? It's this thing that counters covetousness. Like the easiest way to fight that feeling of covetousness is to decide that we're going to enter into joy. When we have intentionally said in our hearts, I'm excited to see God give good gifts to my brother or to my sister because he is gracious. That love of self that we talked about earlier, that self-sickness that we have, it begins to fade Because our eyes aren't fixed on us, they're fixed on him. They're fixed on his goodness. And so the reason that the believer transformed by the renewing of their mind, letting love be genuine, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor, seeking to show hospitality, can rejoice with those who rejoice. Us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And knowing that what's happening in our hearts when we don't particularly feel like it is an opportunity for us to walk toward maturity. And many times that doesn't get fleshed out until after envy and covetousness have already happened. They've already started to take root. And that's the good news of the gospel is that when we notice, hey, I should be rejoicing now, but my heart is envious. My heart is covetousness. I can repent. And there's grace that covers that. And I can enter into joy after sin has already tried to wreck it. Last point uh, that I want to make on this specific thing um, is is this. Another way that we could put into practice, particularly here in the community of faith, what God has called us to, is by actually seeking out opportunities to acknowledge God's graciousness and rejoice together with those around us. And I think sometimes we fail to see that. Uh, Ellen and I were talking about a conversation she had with a friend the other night and a comment that her friend made about how sometimes it seems like we can get so caught up doing the churchy activities, the stuff associated with church life that we lose sight of the fact that church life is supposed to happen with the church, which is made up of people. There's things happening in our lives that are beyond GC and D group and Sunday evening worship together. 
And we can get so busy doing all of this. Like I am super guilty of it. So when we were talking about this the other night, I was super convicted. We can get so busy doing the stuff that we do that we forget to actually enter into the opportunities we have to rejoice with one another. Or to actually enter into the opportunities we have to weep and enter into sorrow with one another. And so that's a good place to transition to the second part of verse 15. Weep with those who weep. Now, if you hadn't read the book of Job, I would encourage you to do so. Um, it is a master class on what it looks like to experience suffering. And it's also a master class on what it looks like to be a friend. Not because the friends in the book of Job are good, actually because they are awful. Like, if you want to know what it looks like not to be a friend, go read Job and you'll learn exactly what it looks like to be a good friend because you just do the opposite of what these dudes do. Job's got four friends. And as his life begins to unravel, it seems, his friends come to him and they sit down in the dust with him and one by one they start to give him their opinions. See, Job had just lost all of his possessions. He had just lost all of his kids. And now he was afflicted with disease and sickness. And he sits wondering why it's all happened And boy, do his friends have ideas. And as the reader, what we know is that their suggested reasons for his demise are totally off the mark. Because we know the backstory. See, God's allowed Satan to afflict Job because he is righteous, not because he's done something wicked. Job is faithful. And so God allows his suffering to prove his faithfulness. Yet his friends, they enter into his grief with these platitudes and advice and criticism and a self-righteous kind of bravado that God's going to eventually rebuke them pretty strongly for. And I think one of the symptoms of our self-obsessed and self-sick moment in history is that we, like Job's terrible friends, think that we have the answers to every question. I will also raise my hand and say, I am guilty. I mean, how could we not feel that way though? Because every answer to just about any question is a couple clicks away. All I have to do is ask my phone to answer a question and it's there. And so we have no patience for enduring the hard questions in life and suffering. And we definitely don't have the patience to do it for others. And so we counter our friend in sorrow. And like Job's friend, we come with our advice or our platitudes or our criticism when what we should really be doing is sitting in sorrowful silence. The call is not to feel sorry for those who weep. It's not just to sympathize and hope that it all gets better. It's not to tell them that they could just download better help and uh, move toward a solution with a licensed professional counselor that can help them get some of that professional self-care. That's not what they need in that moment. There's a place for those things, but it comes later. Paul says what we are to do is to weep with those who weep. In other words, we're to participate in their sorrow. In his little book, Life Together, German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the law of Christ is a law of bearing. 
Bearing means forbearing and sustaining. The brother is a burden to the Christian precisely because he is a Christian. For the pagan, the other person never becomes a burden at all. He simply sidesteps every burden that others may impose upon him. The Christian, however, must bear the burden of a brother. He must suffer and endure the brother. It is only when he is a burden that another person really is a brother and not merely an object to be manipulated. It is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of another. If one does not experience it, the fellowship he belongs to is not Christian. If any member refuses to bear that burden, he denies the law of Christ. See, weeping with those who weep is taking the burden of someone else upon yourself. Not trying to fix them or take away their sorrow. We're to be the people who learn the skill of putting into practice being patient in the midst of tribulation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like we of all people should know how to weep because of the sorrow our neighbors face. Because we know how broken the world is. We know how broken it's become. And we know that this broken world is being renewed by the Spirit through the church as Jesus' victory over sin and death is reversing the curse. Yet like Jesus, we should still be willing to step into the sorrow of our friends. You remember the story of uh, John chapter 11? Um, Jesus and his friend Lazarus. And if you, you hear about Jesus and his friend Lazarus, I'm sure what's the first thing that comes to mind? That's the dude he raised us from the dead. Right? Like this dude's dead and Jesus brings him back to life. And that's what John 11 is all about. Like the entire chapter is about Jesus going and saying, hey bro, come out and live. And if that's exactly where we go when we start talking about Jesus and Lazarus, we actually miss one of the most important things that we read in all of Scripture. So here the story goes like this. Like Lazarus gets sick and Jesus delays four days before he goes to see him. And dude dies. And Jesus comes to their hometown of Bethany and he's met first by Martha. And she's kind of got it all together. She's kind of sucked her tears up. She's walked out and she just goes, Jesus, if you'd been here, I know that he wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks at her and he says, hey, Martha, look, you, you know that I'm the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, he will live. And she says, I, she starts theologizing and she says, I know, I know that on the last day he'll be raised again. Jesus kind of listens and then they walk on. And then he comes to Mary. And Mary does not have it all together. When Jesus gets to Mary, the scripture says that Mary comes and the conversation kind of goes the same, but Mary is weeping. And Jesus sees her weeping and her friends who are with her weeping. And it says in uh, verse 33, that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the next verse, Jesus wept. As a church, troubled in his spirit because of their loss and the grief that they feel. In this moment, he's moved by it. And so he literally weeps with them. 
But he does what Paul tells us. He weeps with those who weep. Yet consider the moment. Jesus weeps with his friends as they weep over their dead brother. That Jesus has literally come to town not to mourn, but to raise to life. Jesus knows that in a matter of minutes, the friends that he's weeping with right now are going to have their mourning turned to joy and dancing as he calls, Lazarus, come forth. And their brother comes hopping out the tomb wearing the grave clothes. And I don't know about you, but I would have wanted to get to that first. Just get it out the gate. Like if I was Jesus, I don't want to just roll up and say, hey guys, listen, there's no need to cry. There's no need to mourn. I am here. I'm the resurrection and the life. You can rejoice. Your brother's going to live. And he doesn't do that. Because as Bonhoeffer said, he's not there to use them. They are not pawns to be manipulated. He did not delay just so that Lazarus could bring God glory. He delayed so that he could show them and show us what it looks like to enter into sorrow and grief, even though we know the end of the story. Martha, Mary and Martha's friends say, see how he loved him. Because Jesus enters into their pain Knowing all that that pain is going to be wiped away in a few short moments, he shows the depth of love that he has for his friends. And I think we can see how this ports over onto our own lives. Like when our friends are suffering, when they're weeping, 2 Corinthians 4.17 is true. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, it just isn't very helpful. Maybe it will be at some point, but what they need right now, when they're suffering in chronic pain and illness, when their house is burned down and all their belongings have been destroyed and their memories have gone up in smoke, when their toddler is diagnosed with cancer or a sibling's been killed in an accident or they lose their job or sin has stolen their marriage, what they need to know, that they need to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that all the sad things are going to come untrue, but they don't need to hear it in that moment. They don't need to hear much of anything save for our sobs by their side. Because the reality is that God may have a plan to work all things together for their good and his glory, but we don't know the details of that plan. And it is presumptuous of us to assume that we do. If Jesus, the one who raises his friends from the dead, weeps with his friends so much that it's recorded in the eternal word of God, how much more should we learn to weep and bear the burden of our friends? The how-to on weeping is pretty straightforward. Shut your mouth and open your arms. And so, just to wrap everything up this evening, whether rejoicing or weeping, you're going to be imposed upon by others as you seek to obey the Lord. 
to love with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Our culture says that imposition in any way on our lives is a step too far. Yet for the believer, we know that we can bear our brother or sister's burden because our burden's been lifted. We've traded our heavy burden of self-justification, of self-righteousness, of self-love for the light burden of the cross of Christ. And listen, we can rejoice with them whenever they receive good things because we know that God's good gifts have been given perfectly to God's children. And if my friend receives what I want, I can rejoice because God doesn't hold out on me. He's already given me all that I need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And that's enough. So let's pray this evening.